And thanks be to God for the reading of God's Word. Thank you, Dave family, for reading the Word of God for us today. Children, today, as you have heard already, we are continuing our studies in the book of 1 John. In this epistle, Apostle John is making a very clear argument. Our Christian lives are supposed to be marked by truth and love. And John is embarking on one of those themes today. He is saying that we should love God and love others. How do you know if you love God? You obey God's command. And what is the very command? is to love others. So to love God and to love others is deeply connected. When we hear love others, what do you think? We say, oh, it's great. How sentimental love others. No, it's nothing but sentimentality actually, because loving others requires you to die to yourself. It's a very sobering calling that John is giving us today. Are you ready for that? As I was just studying this passage, the Lord has very firmly convicted my heart. And I pray that He will do the same to you. May the Lord gently and yet firmly speak to your heart and reorient you to the way of the Lord, to the way of light. May the Lord speak to us as we dive in today. So, two questions that will drive our text is this. How does it look like to love God? And how does it look like to love others? First, how does it look like to love God? Read verse 3. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His command. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Now, let me tell you why the context is so important. Because if you just read this verse by itself, it almost sounds like John is saying we are saved by keeping his commands. Is that what John is saying? I think not. If you remember, we have been studying this book for the past couple of weeks. And in the past couple of weeks, we studied the first chapter of John. In that chapter 1, John is saying the eternal God has become incarnate Son of God. And when you believe in Him, when you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. In other words, our salvation, our forgiveness is found in Christ alone and what He has done. So it is not our doing, keeping of God's commands that leads us to this forgiven state, our being, but actually it's exactly opposite. Because we are forgiven by what Christ has done on the cross, our being that leads to doing, our forgiven state being leads to joyful obedience to what God has called us. It's very important to remember this order properly because when you reverse that, if you believe that your doing will lead to being, you just have made Christianity just like any other religions, any other major religions in the world. It will often say that your good deeds will lead to your salvation. But Christianity stands in exactly opposite. It is because we are freely forgiven by the costly love of Jesus Christ that leads us to joyful surrender, joyful obedience of what God has called us to do. 
Now, that being said, let me lay that foundation clearly. What John is saying is very clear, isn't it? Hey, if you keep his commandments, you are in truth. But if you say that you know him, but does not keep his command, you are a liar. It's a very sovereign statement. He's asking us to keep his command. And what does that look like? Verse 5. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. John is saying, how do you know that you love God? By keeping, by obeying his command. Know what John is saying. John is not saying, how do you know you love God? By making a bunch of sacrifices. By doing all the other things for the Lord. No, what John is saying, how do you know you love God? By obeying the simple command of the Lord. In other words, obedience is better than sacrifice. Charlton, how have you justified your disobedience with sacrifice? In other words, how have you thought, well, because I am doing these many good works for the Lord, God will overlook some of my sins, my disobedience, my besetting sins. What are those? How have you justified yourself in that? The more you want to serve the Lord, oftentimes we fall into this trap. Oh, I'm doing so many great things for the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will overlook some of my little sins. No, the obedience is better than sacrifice. I don't think I can articulate this better than the Prince of Preacher, Charles Spurgeon. So this is a lengthy quote that he said in his preaching, but let me read it to you as best as I can. Dear brother, there may be some evil habit in which you are indulging, and which you excuse by the reflection, well, I'm always at the prayer meeting, I'm constantly at communion, and I give so much of my substance to the support of the Lord's work. I am glad that you do these things, but oh, I pray you give up that sin. I pray you cut it to pieces and cast it away. For if you do not, all your show of sacrifice will be but an abomination. The first thing which God requires of you as his beloved is obedience. And though you should preach with the tongue of men and of angels, though you should give your body to be burned and your goods to feed the poor, yet if you do not hearken to your Lord and are not obedient to his will, all besides shall profit you nothing. So church, what are those sacrifices that you justify your disobedience? Lay those down before him and follow his simple command. Obey. And now, how does obedience look like then? Right? We must ask a question. John gives the answer. Look verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, this is rather difficult. Why is this difficult? Because it often contradicts our, quote-unquote, the common sense. What's our common sense? Well, obedience leads to blessing and life. Well, read the book of Proverbs. Oftentimes, you work hard, the Lord will bless you. If you are lazy, you might fail. The cause and effect is very clear. We often want that. However, have you also read the book of Job? 
Does obedience lead to prosperity? Not at all. It leads to suffering. We want to believe that obedience leads to blessing in life. But there are many examples. Job, have you seen the John the Baptist who faithfully proclaimed the coming Messiah, the coming of the Lord, only ended up as a mockery in a plate as he was beheaded? Have you heard about Stephen, the martyr? He was faithfully proclaiming the gospel message that obedience led to stonement. He was stoned to death. Have you heard about our Savior Jesus Christ? Obedience did not lead to life and blessing, but led to death and curse. What is it then? Does obedience lead to life or death? Yes, to both. What do I mean by that? Obedience calls you to death of self, but a birth of a true life. Yes, obedience calls you to death of self, but a birth of a true life. What do I mean by that? Obedience will require you to lay down your deadly ambition, the self-gratification, self-exhortation, self-absorption. It will cause you to die to yourself, but it will give you the true life, the birth, the true life of liberty, true freedom, true rest found in Christ alone when you follow the will of God. Some of you might hear this and say, yeah, right, I knew this. Yeah, Christianity, of course, it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's like, oh, it chokes me, it's too much. It's like a straitjacket. I don't want that. Well, let's not throw a baby out with bathwater. Obedience is not legalism. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. The problem of you saying, I knew it, I don't want any of that. I want to be my own authority. I want the spiritual autonomy. Look how that led to. Look, Adam and Eve, when they sought their spiritual autonomy, when they took the forbidden fruit by disobeying the command of the Lord, look where we are today. We often want to be the spiritual authority, spiritual autonomy, but we are grossly ignorant about the condition and the motivation of human heart. The foolishness of God is better than the wisest of us. So church, when we say die to self, but a birth to a true life, would you live like dying? Lay yourself down, surrender yourself. Because when you live like dying, there is true life. When you lay your deadly ambition down, fleshly desire down, there is a true life that comes by simple obedience and surrender that God has called you. So what does loving God look like? by obeying his command. Then we must ask the question, right? What is his command then? What is John asking us to do? What is the command of the Lord? Well, read verse seven and eight. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. This verse is rather confusing. It talks about the command, but in verse 7, he says, I'm not talking about the new one, but an old one. But in verse 8, it says, actually, I am talking about new one. Oh, what is John saying here is this. When John says in verse 7, I'm not talking about new one, 
but an old one which you have heard from the beginning is John referring to the Jesus life, birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that these people have heard, these people in the church of Ephesus have heard since the beginning of their faith. At the same time, this very old command goes all the way back to the ancient faith of Israelite. Love your neighbor. And what is the new command that Jesus gives? The verse 8 that talk about, I'm talking a new command. John 13, 34 says this, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. So what John is saying is this, this old and new covenant is this, to love your neighbor, love one another. How do you know you love God? By obeying God's command. And what is that God's command that John is saying here? Love one another, love your brothers and sisters. Then secondly, how does that look like? How does loving others look like? Now, I just want to warn you, this can be very convicting. I pray that you open your heart and to let the Lord convict you freely. Read verse 9 through 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Now, up to chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, you can sort of get by in your own justification saying, oh yeah, obeying the command of the Lord, the external confirmation, as long as I do this, this, I am okay. But John does not leave any slack here. He cuts right through the heart. No, 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 no. Obedience is not just external confirmation of just obeying the command externally, but true obedience is at the heart, at the heart. Love one another. He just not leaves you to misunderstand as if obedience is all about doing external confirmation, which Pharisees were absolutely master at, but their hearts are far, far from God, filled with self-righteousness. So John is saying, where is your heart today? And he gives this dichotomy. If you love your brother and sister, then you are in the light. But if you hate your brother or sister, you are in darkness, and that darkness has blinded you. Now, when we read this passage, it's very easy for us to excuse ourselves. Oh, I don't hate those people. Well, then let me baptize that word for you. We kind of sort of saying this, while there's bitterness and resentment, we say, well, I don't hate that person. I love that person, but dot, dot, dot. Well, she has a good heart, yet, what bothers you? Who bothers you? Let me ask this question. Who runs in your mind most often? Who do you find yourself having imaginary conversation all the time? Who do you hope to never see again or avoid, perhaps? Who do you become a judge upon their life? You become a judge saying, oh, he's wrong on that. Oh, she shouldn't have said that. Who do you overanalyze? What did he mean by that? Oh, did she mean by this when she said that? Who is that person constantly runs in your mind? You just want to avoid or fight. Well, 
that will soon grow into resentment and bitterness. And if you are there, the darkness will blind you. It's a sobering statement. Who has come to your mind? You might soon realize that love and hate isn't that far from each other, actually. The ones that you hate are not necessarily people you don't know who are far, far from you. But oftentimes, ones that you resent, ones that you bitter about are the ones that are very near to you. Sometimes you claim to love, actually. Like ones that you are most resentful about, bitter about, stay up late at night worrying about are perhaps your family members, your husband, your wife, your children, perhaps your parents, your co-workers and colleagues. The ones you claim to love actually are the ones that bothers you so much that you're resentful and you become bitter. And John is saying when you get there, the darkness has blinded you. So, Chatham, how is your heart today? If any person popped up in your mind, I want to walk you through and shepherd your heart right now because that's what John is doing, cutting right through your heart. Now, what I'm about to give you is not necessarily conflict resolution steps, such as go to talk to that person, seek a mentor, get some advice. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm trying to help you is to shepherd your heart right now where you are at as you listen to this sermon, things that you can do right after this sermon. Four practical steps. First, identify who you're upset with. Here, John says it. The darkness might have blinded you when you become so resentful and when you become so bitter. You must first and foremost identify who you're upset with. We often are so nice. We said, well, but I love her. Yeah, dot, 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 dot. Sometimes you're very upset about somebody. Be brutally honest with yourself by calling that as it is. Who is that person? Who do you find yourself in your mind constantly having the imaginary conversation with in your mind? Who is it? And who, to whom do you wish to be a judge upon their life? That you become judge in their life. And so after you identify who that person is, second, determine what you're upset about. See, you have to be very concrete about this because abstract will only lead to abstract forgiveness. But when you make it very concrete how they have wronged you, that will lead to concrete forgiveness. Sometimes if you just remember in your mind, it becomes jumbo mumbo and tangle in your head. Sometimes write it out. What and how they have wronged you that you are so resentful and bitter about. Why they have upset you so much. What is that? So this is not an easy exercise, but I will ask you, please don't stop there. If you stop after identifying that person, after determining what they've wronged you, if you just stop there, it will lead to actually more resentment, more bitter. But it's first kind of purification exercise. You must get it out. Be very concrete, write it out, journal it, think about it as clear as possible. Now, third, confess and forgive. As Jesus has taught us, as he has taught us, Father, forgive us as we have forgiven those who have wronged us. What Jesus is saying this, church, it's really hard to forgive somebody when you think you're right. When you are in the superior seat, it's really hard to forgive somebody. You must have the humility of your heart in order to extend forgiveness. How do you have that? Ask God to forgive you first and foremost. 
God, I have been resentful. I have been bitter. I have been right in my own eyes. I have only done right. Forgive me. Humble me. The humility of your heart will lead to forgiveness. You, can, you must confess before you even exercise forgiveness. As Jesus has forgiven us, we forgive others. Now, remember that forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Forgiveness is not amnesia. In other words, forgiveness is not just, oh, I don't remember what happened. No, forgiveness is active cancellation of the debt rather than invoking, rather than invoicing the debt. You choose to let go. You choose to forgive because you know what Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Might as well, you had a thousand imaginary conversation. Have her bring out an empty chair. Have a real conversation with an empty chair in front of you. I choose to forgive you because of this and that. You have wronged me, yet I have been wronged too. I forgive you. I have been resentful. I forgive you. Be very concrete about it. Identify who you are upset with. Determine what they have done wrong. Third, confess with the humility of the heart and extend forgiveness. Andy Stanley says this, In the shadow of my heart, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward my enemy. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. In other words, forgiveness seems just like it's for them. What am I good for? But no, forgiveness is just extending what Christ has done to us to the other person. Would you forgive? Now, confess and forgive. Now, problem is often we end it there. We identify who have wronged us. We determine what we are upset about. We confess and forgive when we are done. I think a fourth step is just as important. Fourth step, adjourn the judgment court. Adjourn the judgment court. What I mean by is this, even after forgive them, even after you let go of your resentment, this memory will constantly haunt you. When you drive all sudden this person, what they've wronged you, perhaps what you're most upset about, will come back to your memory. When it comes back to your heart, you must adjourn the judgment court. You are no longer sitting on the judgment seat as a judge. You are no longer bringing prosecutor. You have done wrong this, wrong that. You must stop that. Now, remember, church, the futility of payback. What we often want is justice. What we often want is vengeance. But know that Christ has said, and He has forgiven us at the cross for our sin. Therefore, we must adjourn the judgment court as He has done that for us as well. Yes, you will often hear forgiveness as a way. You must forgive because it's good for you. Otherwise, you hold bitterness, resentment. That's right. Yet also you need to remember that forgiveness is also a form of suffering. What I mean by that is this. When you forgive someone, rather than invoking the debt they owe you, you're choosing to absorb the debt rather than seeking vengeance and justice in that sense. You're choosing to absorb, yes, I am hurt, but God has forgiven me when I have wronged him too, so I choose to forgive. It's the form of suffrage, form of dying to self. Yet as we said, that dying to self leads to birth to a true life. How Christ has intended us to live our lives. Stand up. Remove yourself from the judgment seat. And then know that judgment court has been finished. Adjourn that. 
identify who you're upset with, determine what they've done wrong to you, confess and forgive, and forth adjourn the judgment court. Now, it was about a couple of weeks ago, we have been meeting as a church on Tuesday evening for a Zoom prayer night. So I've been attending, and in our prayer gathering, we have this time of confession. And time of confession comes during our prayer time, one hour prayer time. And one of our elders, I believe it was Jim, was leading the time. And then Jim said, hey, let's confess our sins before the Lord. I'm thinking, well, actually I've been pretty good this week. I don't know what to confess. But then he began, went on after a few minutes by saying this. Hey, when the Lord prays, the Lord teaches us how to pray. He says, Father, forgive us. as you forgive those who trespass against us. Now, that says that we ought to forgive others as you ask God to forgive us. And who are you most about, upset about? Who are you most resentful about? Who are you bitter against? As soon as he said that, I was mortified. Because just a moment before, I was thinking, I am pretty good, I don't have much to confess. But as soon as he said that, shame on me a friend of mine popped up in my mind and it was public zoom calls like 50 70 of us i just put my head like this and god i am so sorry as john said because when we are resentful when we are bitter the darkness has blinded me i am blinded to my blindedness i think i am right i think i am superior i confessed in front of those 50 70 people god In my eyes, I am so right. Why is that, God? And forgive me as you have forgiven me. And I was so humbled by that experience because I knew, God, it's the people I claim to love. Sometimes I have most a difficult time. Father, would you forgive me? Would you remove me from that judgment seat? Would you remove me from that self-righteousness? So as I confessed, the Lord has really convicted my heart because as John says, if you are like that, you are in darkness, it has blinded you. Church, come to light. Remove yourself from the judgment court. Love one another. That's what John is exhorting us today. Then where do you get the power to do that? Is that just willpower by walking through these steps that I have given you? God forbid, where do you get the power? Where do you get the resources to be able to extend that forgiveness? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus had every right to hate us? Our loving God stripped of all his glory and came down to dwell among men. God among us. God dwell with us, Emmanuel. What a sacrifice he has made. Yet we hated him. We are enemies of him. We nailed him to the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, did he seek vengeance? Father, punish them. They have no idea what they are doing. Not at all. Jesus Christ cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Do you know how to move from darkness to light? Jesus absorbed all darkness at the cross of Jesus Christ. The darkness fell upon our sixth to ninth hour. And through his death, through his love, now the light has shone around us. So church, children of Christ, come to light. Abandon the darkness. How do you do that? How do you love others? Remember, 
Jesus tells us, this is new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has loved us to death. And because of Jesus loved us to death at the cross of Jesus Christ, now we have power to love one another. Church, where are you? What John is saying is very clear. How do you know you love God? By obeying God's command. And what is the command? It's to love one another. If you love your brothers and sisters, you are in the light. If you hate them, if you are resentful of them, if you are bitter about them, you are in darkness. And Jesus today is calling you to come from darkness to light. Come to the light that Jesus shines. Church, let us love one another just as Jesus has loved us to death at the cross. So he calls us to death of self, but a birth of a true life that he made happen at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, often I am the judge of my own life. I think I'm right. I think I'm superior. And, oh Lord, as John says, darkness has blinded me. Oh Lord, you have called us into the light. So would you allow us, by being so captivated by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, would you compel us to come to light by loving one another? Oh God, we confess and we repent. Oh Lord, help us to... Cancel the debt as you have done on the cross for us. Help us to love one another. God, thank you for the word of God. May we truly live out what we have heard today. In your precious name we pray. Amen.